Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Your Ben Jarofsky show for this Thursday, June 29th starts now. On today's show, good friend of the Ben Jarofsky show and good friend of the people of Chicago, Denali Dasgupta returns. The Ben Jarofsky Show is brought to you in part by SEIU Healthcare Illinois, Indiana, the Chicago Federation of Labor, the Chicago Teachers Union, and Chicago Reader. ChicagoReader.com for everything there is to know in the city of Chicago, where to go, what to do, what to eat, what to drink, and so much more. And if you're looking for Ben Jarofsky, he's there too. All you got to do, jump over ChicagoReader.com forward slash Jarofsky. That's J-O-R-A-V as in victory, S-K-Y. Hello again, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. We're calling this the fall of Lakeview Thursday, and here's why. Lakeview has fallen, ladies and gentlemen. Lakeview has fallen. All right. I know there's so much to talk about today. Legitimate news. Uh, the Supremes, in their infinite wisdom, have decided to uh, torpedo affirmative action. We'll get into that. Uh, that is uh, on my mind right now. But um, I got I just have to have, just step back for a moment uh, and give a shout out. Do two things. One, give a shout out uh, to uh, the Chicago Teachers Union uh, and also ask my beloved media, what are you doing? All right. So first, uh, the Chicago Teachers I don't know who does this at the Chicago Teachers Union. Well, I know it's Stacey Davis Gates. Doubt it. Uh, but somebody at the Chicago Teachers Union runs a uh, Instagram site called Chicago Teacher Memes. And uh, they are funny, in my humble opinion. And I say that they're funny because usually the I'm the joke is on somebody that I'm already laughing at, like some mainstreamer or some centrist or some downtown uh, official. Uh, and uh, so it's always good when we are laughing at them. I know. I know. That's how it works. Anyway, so uh, they're very funny. Whoever whoever does this shout out to who you, whoever you are, uh, it's they don't take credit for it. All right. So for the last couple of days, they've been doing a, uh, a series of memes on uh, <laughs> the Channel 9, the breathless noonday reporting of a Channel 9 reporter uh, in the aftermath of, I don't what do you want to call it? I mean, it, dep- it really, wh- how you choose to describe what happened really suggests who you are and how you view the world. So I could say the youthful exuberance of post-Pride celebrants. I could kind of make it like a positive thing if I choose. Or I could say the anarchic behavior of the mob. Whatever, okay? You know, like however you describe it sort of suggests where you're coming from. And um, in this case, after the Pride uh, parade, uh, the official celebration. There was the post celebration that took place around Belmont and Clark Street uh, in Chicago, the north side in a neighborhood called Lakeview. Okay, so some of my listeners are from out of Chicago. They don't know. It's a Lakeview called, it's, excuse me, it's a neighborhood called Lakeview. It's just down the street from Wrigley Field on the north side of Chicago, an affluent area of Chicago that uh, back in the 70s was where the, like it was, it was boys town is where uh, like gay residents of Chicago congregated and felt confident enough to assert themselves and live openly, all right? Uh, it's long since gentrified beyond the original uh, boy town, uh, but that's sort of like that site where the Pride Parade takes place. I'm saying all this, all you local Chicagoers go, Ben, we know this. Yeah, well, you know, did you ever think there was someone out there who doesn't know it, okay? So, uh, so there was the post-Pride uh, celebration, uh, if you will, or the post pride breakdown of civilization as we know it again, <laughs> depending on your worldview, which consisted of, I don't know, a couple hundred, 300. I have no idea. Who knows? The, 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 the numbers get exaggerated. Um, teens, 
Like that's what they call them, teens. That's like so. I assume there were some who were maybe twenty. Technically, not a teen. Just saying. Uh, and I doubt there were any preteens. I doubt there were any like twelve-year-olds out there. But there may have been one or two, like a younger brothers. Uh, and they went. They were just racing around, yelling, screaming, uh, jumping on cars in some cases, uh, doing what celebrants do. And let's face it, man, it scared the hell out of a lot of boomers in Lakeview. <laughs> Listen, man, I love boomers. Boomers, you know I love you. I know you well because I am one of you. And I know how scared you get. Oh, my God, there's a bunch of teenagers. I'm scared. And so somebody called up Channel 9, some reporter on Channel 9, and she came out and did a report on Monday. And they were like interview, like terrified. So actually, so I got, I'm going to give boomers a cut. Some of these, the people they interviewed look younger than boomers. So you Gen Xers and older millennials, I don't know. You're heading down that path. You know, you guys buy a condo and suddenly you're property owners. And I'm very concerned about property values. <laughs> Man, I'm just saying, Gen Xers, Gen Xers love to act like they're different than boomers. You know, we're like a special generation that's overlooked. You guys are as worthless as boomers, okay? Trying to think of any worthwhile Gen X politician, you know, that I want to say, oh, Brandon Johnson. I believe he's a Gen X politician. Anyway, I'm thinking here right now of my dear friend, Romana Hussein and Mick Dumkey, who are Gen Xers and always giving me grief, particularly Romana. So anyway, they interviewed these people and like, it was terrifying. It was out of control. They were, they were jumping on cars. And this breathless reporter is like, she's feeding this stuff for a noontime audience. The noontime. Now, the only one I know, my distinguished guest, Denali, uh, that's to tell me is her son enjoys the Channel 9 News. So that's the youngest person I know who listens to the Channel 9 News. News. Monroe Anders, my dear friend, who is of the baby boomer persuasion. He, like, I think of Monroe when I think of the Channel 9 News. He's watching, okay? So they're like feeding this message and they know their audience. It's boomers in a house and they're scared. Let's feed them. The neighborhood was taken over by dangerous teenagers who jumped on cars. It was very frightening. Somebody said they heard it. They think they heard a gun. They heard a gunshot. Thankfully, nobody was shot. So I don't know if there was a gunshot. I who knows if there was a gunshot. But just thank goodness no one was shot. All right. There's gunshots all over the city of Chicago at any given time. We're insane with our love for guns. So it very well could have been a shot, but no one was hurt. No evidence of the shot. Anyway, so I don't know who runs <laughs> the uh, social media department at Channel 9. But after this breathless report, be scared, be very scared, Lakeview residents. With, now back to you, Billy Bob, in the studio. After that report, you know how they do it with the reporter talking right there, like right there in the field. Like I'm out here, and then they kick it back to the studio with Billy Bob. It's like, thank you for the uh, Junie Joe for that report. Um, on there, they sent out uh, a, I don't know, I guess this is a tweet promoting their um uh, promoting their event, uh, excuse me, their new story. And it, here's the headline. Hundreds of teens take over Lakeview, take over Lakeview, destroying neighborhood, destroying neighborhood. <laughs> I'm like, are you kidding me? And then like, like you read the accompanying story and you're like, I've, I've, the police did a pretty good job of just sort of containing the partying, rampaging, whatever your word is, teens to like two blocks. So they didn't take over Lakeview. They took over two blocks of Lakeview because the police allowed them to take over Lakeview. And they didn't destroy the neighborhood. The neighborhood is still very much there. I don't know where, what, who is running the social media channel <laughs> nine destroying Lakeview? Anyway, so the Chicago Teachers Union having a field day with this, sending out all these memes. Go to Instagram. You look them up yourself. Uh, <laughs> but they, they took this picture of like a ravaged civilization and posed it on to Lakeview. So I guess you see, you know, it's kind of the north side of Chicago, and it, but it's been destroyed like a meteor has hit us and civilization, civilization has ended. And the headline is, 
Lakeview has fallen. I love the <laughs> Lakeview. And they've done a bunch of them. But I, I want to point this out, Lakeview. And I'm, I'm pointing this out, media as well. And everybody in the universe. Why is it that when teenagers, and I guess, I don't know, most of them were black. A lot of them were black. Kind of, says that's what the footage showed. When that happens, it's destruction as we know it. Society has ended. Lakeview has fallen. The neighborhood has been destroyed. But when rapturous Cub fans converge in roughly the same area and are berserk with happiness, as happened in 2016 when their beloved Cubs won the World Series. And by the way, many of them that were right there in 2015 when their beloved Blackhawks won. And they're rampaging through the area. They've closed down the streets. They're jumping on cars. Why is that not the end of civilization as we know it? What is it about rampaging pride celebrants that makes them so different than rampaging Blackhawk fans? I remember the Blackhawk fans in 2015. There was a picture of one of them mooning. He, like, dropped his drawers and he put it. Like, isn't doesn't that represent the end of civilization as we know it? Like, just openly defying the laws of public decency? But no, everybody's like, <laughs> that's so funny. It's a Blackhawk fan. <laughs> why, why do we have these different reactions? Same tumult, same rapture fans racing around. You know, why, why one reaction as opposed to the other reaction? I wonder about, maybe, hey, maybe the Channel 9 News at 12 could do an investigative story. Different reactions in Lakeview. <laughs> Nah, that won't scare baby boomers. I realize that the whole point of the Channel 9 news thing at noon is to scare baby boomers. But there's so much real stuff to be scared about. Like, we got this smoke out here. You can't walk outside. The Canadian forest fires. The end of the planet as we know it. The global warming. That's pretty frightening. Do we also need rampaging teenagers taking over a neighborhood? Details at noon. Anyway. Enough of me on this topic. Without further ado, I'm going to bring on Denali, former aldermanic candidate in the 39th Ward. Uh, in my opinion, a brilliant analyst of our society. And I didn't realize this. Uh, this will come in useful in the next topic when we talk about affirmative action. A graduate of Yale. I don't know how I did not know that. You probably told me that, Denali, and I forgot it. Uh, so I contain multitudes, Ben. Yeah. <laughs> Wait a minute, it's a Walt Whitman reference. Um, so uh, before we move on to affirmative action, your thoughts on the fall of Lakeview? Yeah, I mean, uh, we were we were laughing about this and um, I remember, oh gosh, what summer was it? Or maybe it's every summer, just all the time now, where the most breathless phrase in the, in the city of Chicago was twerking on a police car. And so it becomes very important about like what you do with your butt. Um, in close proximity to public property. And the night of the, the big Cubs win, you know, we talk about this, I'm, I'm not from here. My husband and I were sitting in our apartment listening to the police scanner. Um, the Cubs were not here, but folks had gotten into Wrigley Field. I believe there were like nude people running around. They had set up this command station uh, at the Taco Bell on Addison. Uh, I believe there was a moment of Taco Bell has fallen or like the Taco Bell barrier has been breached. I mean, I... I think that this is just, um, I don't know, well, I want to talk to you about movies later on as, as cultural barometers, but I think that we might be in this moment. So last time we talked about the 70s, where the 70s become the 80s. So uh, we can think about this as our like red dawn moment, our war games moment, our the end of the world apocalypse. Uh, here most eyes to take on this chaos, uh, Mad Max in Lakeview. I don't know. Um, I, I will say, though, if, if you're trying to pinpoint that demographic, one of the things I find really perplexing about Lakeview is there's a lot of places you can go to only have your hair blow dried. So they're not full hair salons. They are just places where you go. You do not get your hair washed. Your hair is just blow dried there. That that appears to be like a business, uh, a standalone business. And there are many of them in Lakeview. And uh, just just so I tie all the ends together, what's the correlation between that and uh, <laughs> 
the other things we were talking about. I know there must be some connection between businesses that do blow dries only. I just, is, <laughs> or, or is it just a, an aside? If I love aside, so if it's just, I, an aside. I think it's an aside, but I think it's sort of if you're looking for market segments and demographics. Um, I, I believe that it, it might not be boomers. It might be sort of a particular sort of blonde woman um, that that might be your your current typical Lakeview denizen. Um, but I don't know. Um, and I am certainly, as we'll talk about, I'm not certainly a person who wants to judge people by the color of their hair, um, more by the content of their character. Well put. Uh, I, um, I, I, I have to tell you that uh, uh, I've seen uh, some of the post-Pride celebrations. Uh, uh, it's been a while since I actually uh, was in the midst of the, uh, the post-Pride moment but i there are a lot of black people in an area that's not used to seeing a lot of black people uh, and this is really trying for the city of chicago and i'm not putting you down chicago this is just who you are uh and uh it's sort of like chicagoans grow up and they expect to see like their own kind particularly white people i'm talking about white people and like when they see a lot of people who are not their kind it does. It, it, it's like, whoa, what's going on here? So, what when the Cubs have their wild celebration, or no, more to point, Blackhawks have their wild celebration. It's basically, it's what they, I just learned. They're bros, white guys. You know, <laughs> oh, he's just a drunk white guy. You know what I'm saying? But if it's a black person, it's like, what's going on here? Why are they here? I feel there's a lot of that going on uh, here, Denali. And that's why your little tangent about the people who go to hair, I don't even know if it's true, uh, to get their hair uh, blow dried as opposed to shampooed and cut may be relevant. Well, so I was going to erase this right behind me on this chart that none of our lists can see is actually a formula for calculating segregation, because I was looking at some stuff related to the elected school board about segregation in schools and residential segregation in Chicago. And so not I mean, the, the thing we talk about when we talk about segregation is racial segregation, and that's certainly the most visible kind. But we also have a ton of economic segregation and we also have age segregation in the city of Chicago, where the majority of our young people and our children actually live around the periphery of our city. And if we think about parts of the city, I mean, the whole city should be for everybody. Right. But when we think about parts of our city that are maybe commonly held or sort of more for the general public than perhaps residents or we have this push pull, you know, I think again about the other places where people object to seeing young people and that's downtown. And who is downtown for? Do we let large groups of young people come downtown? Well, downtowns are for everybody in the city, for everybody in the suburbs and the region and hopefully the world. That's what we have to offer. And yet we have the same response to seeing, you know, large groups of exuberant young people, especially when they're young people of color, downtown enjoying our world class city. Um, so I will uh, I will throw that out there as well, that that seems to be part of this longer conversation that you and I seem to have about, you know, who gets what and why and, and what's for whom and where people should stay or go. Um, and all of these little tiny retrenchments um, about what's yours and what's mine. And we don't talk about as much about what's ours as a city. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that uh, age segregation. And um, downtown. Uh, the real estate uh, industry downtown uh, has really um, uh, has, uh, what is it, marketed itself, that's the word, uh, to older people. Once you're, you move to the burbs, you raise your family, if the kids are grown and moved out, you don't need that big house, come downtown. Uh, and that's a chief marketing uh, appeal. Also to... Um, you're just out of college. You got your first job. Uh, you're making pretty good money. It's obviously a white collar job. Every in the tech industry, maybe you want to come downtown. But it's those two segments, and they don't have kids. I hadn't thought about you know that's damn Denali's smart. I hadn't thought about that. And so um, the intrusion, if you will, of teenagers in an area where there's not a lot of teenagers is uh, frightening in and of itself. 
uh, if you're an older person looking for peace. I, listen, man, I'm guilty. Well, of if you're a person who thinks that downtown is a place where you go to spend money, right? A downtown is also a place where we have a lot of public spaces. And we do get to this point where public spaces should be for everyone to inhabit. Um, but part of the reason that people don't like large groups of teenagers, whether it's corner stores or Millennium Park, is that they assume that they are just going to be whatever you want to call it. Again, like how you describe it kind of kind of gives you away lingering, loitering. Um, I would just say existing, enjoying public space and public resources. Pe people don't love it. Um, mm -hmm. Teenagers are not well known for, you know, having a lot of money in their pocket to spend. Yeah. I, I would just went to Millennium Park uh, on two occasions in the last week to see concerts uh, and obviously be open. There are concerts that were generally going to appeal to older people. Uh, jazz. What did you just say? I saw the Ramsey Lewis tri uh, tribute to Ramsey Lewis, who's one of the great jazz pianists from Chicago, piano players from Chicago. He died. Uh, and there was a tribute to him on Thursday where like various great jazz players came up and did various songs. And then on uh, Monday, I saw the Eddie Palmieri. Uh, orchestra without Eddie Palmieri, the great piano player who couldn't make it to Chicago, but his orchestra was there. They were just killed it, man. What a great concert that was. Uh, and uh, so there were very few, if any, teenagers anywhere. <laughs> not a whole lot of teenagers like jazz. Uh, and, I mean, not uh, since the 1920s. <laughs> did they like jazz in the 20s? I don't know. See, that's yeah, a cultural thing. People were complaining thing. a lot about jazz ruining everything for a little while. Yeah, for a little while. So was it like a 16-year-old in Winnetka liking jazz? I don't know the answer to that. Okay, <laughs> I, I was, I'm old, but I'm not that old. Um, well, it was and, the, the other demographic point, because I always have to smuggle demography in here, is that mm -hmm. when you talk about boomers being frightened by large groups of young people, is that you can make the argument that boomers kind of initiated mass youth culture in America, right? So we have a sort of size-wise, a really large cohort of folks who were born in the post-war era, and between that kind of like large group of young people and post-war prosperity, you see all these, these things happening, right? You see movies and music and culture. Um, and I think it's really funny to think about these as folks who are afraid of young people. I mean, like, I'm sure, you know, Annette Funicello was dancing on a car at some point and people didn't lose their effing minds. Right. And and to think about that as being a panic generation now feels really interesting to me. And again, I think we do have to go back to this moment where, you know, the 60s become the 70s and then the 70s become the 80s. Um, when you think and talk about pride, right, in the 70s, you see the explosion of the women's rights movement, um, pursuit of the Equal Rights Amendment, you see Roe v. Wade, you see, um, you know, the civil rights movement move into the Black Power movement, you see gay rights, you see Asian Americans, Chicano Latino rights, um, you know, a bunch of labor stuff. And then towards the end of that decade, Right. There are some people who say, oh, boy, there are a lot of loud voices. There are a lot of people in the streets leading with their identity and with concrete demands about how they want to participate in society and how they want to be visible and how they want to live. It sure feels like a lot. Um, and, you know, you get a little mini version of that with the fall of Lakeview. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. The fall of Lakeview. Uh, and, all right, let's move on from the fall of Lakeview uh, and talk about the news that's breaking this morning. Uh, the Supreme Court ruler, I think we were all anticipating, all people who were following the Supreme Court uh, were uh, are anticipating this ruling. Six to three, uh, annihilating, that's the word I want to use, the, the notion of affirmative action and admissions for universities. The two particular universities that were targeted in this case were Harvard, uh, Denali's bitter rival, and um, the, <laughs> I just threw that out there, uh, and the, uh, North Carolina, uh, and uh, the uh, Supremes, as I said, six to three, the conservatives ganged up on the three liberals, the hapless liberals outnumbered, and uh, they said that uh, to favor black people uh, or Hispanic people, but, you know, it's always at the back of their mind, it's the black people. Let's just be honest, ladies and gentlemen, uh, it, to favor them in admissions. Uh, is uh, reverse racism. It's unconstitutional. It goes against the grain of what makes America America. And the time has come to outlaw it once and for all so we can have a true meritocracy. Let me just point out before Denali gets this. <laughs> I find this delightful, the notion of meritocracy in America. At this moment, ladies and gentlemen, while the Supreme Court is establishing the need for meritocracy on in college admissions so that everybody is only the you only are rewarded if you deserve it. 
if you've proved that you've earned the reward you're about to get, in which case the reward is admission into some of the greatest universities there are in our country. But you have to prove that you've earned it. And you have to prove that you've earned it in things like out test scores that you did and, and your grade point average and whether you had a diverse background and like you were on the football team or the track team, et cetera, and so forth. Meritocracy. At that very moment, the city of Chicago, Arlington Heights, Aurora, am I forgetting anybody? Naperville, our Waukegan, almost forgot you, Waukegan, are begging the Bears, please, Bears, please <laughs> take our money so you can build a stadium. But let me tell you, folks, what you need to know. I know a lot of you political types who listen to my show don't follow sports. The Bears are one of the most worthless football teams in the league. This is the exact opposite of meritocracy. This is batteroctoracy. I don't even know what to call it. It's so bad. This would be like giving me, and I was a mediocre student who struggled, really struggled. This would be like giving me a four-year scholarship to Harvard without even having to take the SAT. That is what the equivalent of giving money to the Bears is. So we all know that meritocracy does not exist. It's a phony construct that is used from time to time to like batter people, usually black people. Uh, for so I think meritocracy is a concept that's used to soothe people who get things that they want and they need to to just, you know, put that, you know, that D word you said, the deserve word. It's a dirty, dirty, weird, bad word. But it is what people, right? So we think about intergenerational privilege. It's what people like me who have a degree from Yale tell our children. Um, you know, when they go up for legacy admissions, you worked really hard. You know, how many violins can you play at the same time you deserve this? Um, and I, I am doing my best not to be that parent. Um, you know, my, my husband is a good partner in that. But I really think the word deserve and earn are such loaded and interesting words that in some ways do more to keep marginal people from rebelling against the idea that we are doing some pretty terrible things. And I will just say about this ruling. So um, Clarence Thomas talked about this being a step towards having a colorblind constitution. Um, we may have talked about this before, Ben, that my mom is an American history teacher or was, she's retired now. And um, I don't know if you've heard of the three-fifths compromise, but that came out of the Constitutional Convention. We did not have a colorblind constitution. We had a constitution that explicitly said that some people were not full people. Uh, we did some, some wacky math to take the demographics of this country and confer privilege and authority to white people. I had a, my high school history teacher had said that you can learn a lot about race relations in America today by studying the demographics of South Carolina in the colonial era because they desperately wanted seats in the House of Representatives, but they were a, a state that wanted to preserve a white minority with lots of power and a large black population that would be largely disenfranchised. And we see this counting people for some purposes and thinking about who deserves what, where we're going to have elite institutions, where we're going to do gatekeeping. We see that everywhere from, you know, our constitution to Chicago public schools to elite colleges to everywhere. And I think that word deserve, it's a, it's a sweet sounding word. It's an innocuous sounding word, but it gives cover so many of these things and it, it allows them to be there in plain sight. Yeah. And by the way, let's just deal with Clarence Thomas for a moment. Why you mentioned Clarence Thomas. Um, wow. I could go on and on. Clarence experience of, of mine as a young person was watching um, Clarence Thomas, um, you know, and, and Anita Hill. Yeah. And it's something that I think about a lot when I actually think about Joe Biden of all people. But, um, you know, it was a really pivotal moment. We had race and gender. And, you know, I was an ex-child. I was making feel bad. Definitely asking mom a lot of questions about the types of things that they were talking about. Um, in those hearings. And so for me, like, that's the moment where Clarence Thomas begins for me. Yeah. No, I, I no, same with me. Uh, I, I was only vaguely aware of Clarence Thomas before those hearings. He was a bureaucrat in the uh, Reagan administration. I forget what he did. So but I was vaguely aware of him before he was nominated. And that was a clear case. The only thing to call it is affirmative action. Uh, it was not colorblind at all. 
There was a black man. I don't think it was affirmative action, though. I think it was a really cynical move. Well, okay. Yeah. yeah, So, I mean, affirmative action again, right? Like, I think of affirmative action as in we are trying in a really imperfect way and in a broken world to take some advantages that we we can't undo and change. Like, you know, again, like intergenerational wealth, right? If you go back a couple of generations and you see who went to college, it was almost all white people. And when you think about what legacy admissions does and is and how that affects who goes to college and go to what colleges, it probably is a real need in the interest of justice to say, you know, some people are already getting a leg up. We can't exactly replicate that. But what else are we doing to kind of level the playing field? And it's always going to be imperfect. Um, but I think in the, the case of Clarence Thomas, it was a very cynical thing to say Thurgood Marshall is leaving yes. and let's put a black person on the court and let's make him our guy. That's correct. Um, and, and, and there's that's an analogy I, that I. So, all right, I'll call it something other than affirmative action with Clarence Thomas. Uh, there was Thurgood Marshall, a black man had stepped down as Supreme Court justice uh, and George Bush felt compelled uh, to name a uh, black person to uh, fit that seat. It was like the quote unquote black seat. So in the most generic def- definition of affirmative action, it's affirmative action, but it's like negative affirmative action. You're absolutely correct because the black person he chose to uh, follow Thurgood Marshall was the antithesis to everything Thurgood Marshall stood for in his life. It was a man determined to destroy <laughs> whatever affirmative moves we were making to promote black people in this country, even as he was the beneficiary of a move to promote a black person himself. It's like he climbed up the ladder and then knocked the ladder down and said, you're on your own, everybody else. And I'm doing this because I believe in a colorblind just society. (laughs) Well, again, right. So I think with really high ranking Republicans of color, and I don't want to say Republican as in a party, but maybe conservatives of color or even women or anybody who is from a, a minority class or or somehow faces oppression who rises up and does the thing, right? You know, and you could say Amy Coney Barrett is this too. The analogy that I like to make, and I've, I've never actually been in the first class section of a plane, so I might be wrong about how planes work, but it's this idea that when you are a, and you know, you're a person of color and you get this opportunity, right? Somebody invites you into first class. You have to think really hard about why they're inviting you and what they're inviting you to do. And I will say that there are some folks who, and I don't want to say make the mistake, but often think that it is about you and it is not always about you. And, and I mean, I've, I've had opportunities as well where people have said, you know, it would be really good for you to do this thing. And I would say this seems to act against the larger interests of you know, my politics, the person that I am or the people that I strive to represent in this world. But I think once you or if you are the kind of person who believes that you you got to first class on your own and that there, there isn't a larger cynical structural thing or like they have one, we should have one. Um, you can be talked into this idea of seeing your lifetime trajectory of hard work or exceptional work or just OK work, whatever you want to see um, as having gotten you there. Yeah. But there is a larger purpose that you serve and you always have to be aware of how folks want to, um, I don't know, I'm going to say like use you. Yeah how they use you. And uh, so Clarence Thomas, I would argue, uh, has been an invaluable member of the Republican Party uh, because he has served their needs. So it's weird. It's really weird. Like the Many notion- of those needs are also his own needs, right? Because you see, you know, how he personally has profited from it. You see a lot of the stuff that his wife is working on politically. I mean, he has certainly gained a lot for his own purposes um, and for causes that he supports, whether or not those are consistent with the sort of larger advancement of folks. And I mean, sort of counter to that, you see someone like Justice um, Sotomayor, who just as a sidebar, very early on in my marriage, I had a very vivid dream that my husband had an affair with Justice Sotomayor, but that she is so fabulous that I could not be angry about it. And it was a very <laughs> vivid dream where they were going to Yankee games together because they're both big Yankee fans. And I just said, you know what? I, I really admire her as a person and I, I completely understand this. And we talk about this a lot, but she, she's someone I have tremendous admiration for, in spite of her perhaps being out there to take my husband from me. Um, and she spoke very eloquently about the role that affirmative action has played in, you know, 
her own life, but also just in trying to make an imperfect effort to right historical wrongs and to really bring about a critical conversation. So even the nature of what we think about as affirmative action has changed. Mm. So we used to have, or there used to be a quota system, right? And there was this idea that we would set aside seats and that's a little bit like how you were talking about the Supreme Court. But in you know 1977, Alan Backey's case that went up to the Supreme Court against the regions of California knocked down the idea of a quota system. So we said like that was how we were trying to kick open the doors a little bit was imperfect. It didn't work. Let's try something else. And I think for a long time, people were sitting in this uncomfortable space of saying, it's still not working. It's still not working. And, you know, a lot of what I hear is that the biggest beneficiaries of affirmative action are white women, um, or there are ways that affirmative action, the way that it's executed still, you know, privileges a pool of seats for legacy admissions and donors. It is imperfect. Up until now, Affirmative action cases have been about us working on it, right? The mechanism is imperfect. The outcomes are not as transformative as we want them to be. But we commit to the project of continuing to work on them. But this ruling feels a little different because we're no longer committing to the project. We're saying that the project is flawed, not the mechanism. And I think that that is a really big problem. What we've eliminated uh, in this ruling is the notion that there is a larger benefit that society gets from having an integrated, in this case, university. And I, you, we were talking yes, about this and. Brief, yes, briefly. And. And we were talking about this briefly before we went in the air. Uh, it's part of a larger trend, I think. Uh, I always talk about it in terms of Chicago. People like segregation. It's, we have a really split notion. Like we, our lives are lived in segregation. So we seem to prefer segregation. As we saw in Lakeview, whenever the segregation is in any way broken or smashed, it scares people. And so segregation is reassuring to people, even though we, we act as though we love integration. So on Jackie Robinson Day, for instance, in the baseball, we celebrate the integration of baseball. And it's a warm and fuzzy moment as though this country is all united be behind overcoming racial barriers. And then we go, as soon as the day is over, we go back to loving segregation. This is a ruling that makes it easier for society, not only to have segregation, Denali, but to justify segregation as being colorblind and oh, so promoting like a meritocracy. Go ahead. We like diversity. We like a little sprinkling. And when we go again back to communities like Lakeview or we think about schools, this idea of selling people on the idea that your kid will do better if they go to an integrated school. This is an idea that's used to sell white people on the idea of diversity in schools. There is a, you know, there is a tipping point in, in communities and in schools and in wherever where people feel like there's diversity, but not too much integration or not too much of anybody, right? There is kind of this calibration that still maintains a power structure. And that all depends on the larger underlying power structure, but people like a little sprinkling of some of us, but not too many and not in large crowds and definitely not teenagers and no twerk athletes. But I think there's I'm gonna also- i push on just a bit okay. uh, and uh, get your response to this. So I followed the quote unquote integration of Chicago schools for a long time. Uh, and at one point it looked as though there was a threat that the courts were going to mandate mandate busing in Chicago, literally putting black kids on a bus, busing them into a white neighborhood and uh, putting them in that school and doing the same with white kids into a black school, forcing integration. All right. The powers that be in this city knew that that would spur white flight. Uh, it's a, a situation similar to what went down in Boston at the same time when they had forced integration. And so what they came up with was the magnet program and the magnet program in the city of Chicago was not telling white parents your child will benefit from sitting next to a black kid uh, just by the fact that virtue of the fact that they're sitting next to a black kid what it said to white parents was we will give something special to this school to induce you to come to this school so your child is sitting next to a black kid and furthermore they did the same with black parents we will put something in this school that will induce you to come to the school and have your child to a white person they never presented it as like a 
something that would benefit a child to be exposed to people of different races. They were told these parents. Go, though. My son attends a magnet school. So I always have to put the disclosures out there, right? Like I am an Ivy League alum. My son attends a magnet school. And but the magnet schools have changed in Chicago. They can't. Under Vallis, under Daly, they did away with the integration purpose of it. They limited the amount of busing, the miles that the buses could go. And so magnet schools, yes, they still exist in the city of Chicago. But the notion that they're there to get a child from the south side of Chicago to go to a north side school is gone. That but student assignment up. in the city of Chicago is totally effed. And let's put a pin in that because I would love to go into that in more detail because I do think there is an idea that every young person attends their neighborhood school. Now, I say my son, I mean my high school age son. He goes to a magnet school. He goes to a great school. And unlike a lot of the selective enrollments that are comparable quality schools, um, his school is still a Title I school and it is still a diverse school. And so I guess in a lot of ways, what we're thinking about when we think and talk about um, elite schools or how we parcel things out, again, comes back to this idea of deserving. And I think that when we we create scarcity, there are so few seats in good schools, there are so many things that are so high prestige, there's a meritocracy because there are there are merits or there are prizes to be grabbed. Um, we are saying, we're, we're kind of attenuating the difference between the haves and the have-nots from a systemic perspective, that's really bad because we should be trying as a public sector or as a school district or as a nation to create a floor. That's our job. It's not to kind of continue to stretch this thing out because the bigger the gap between the best of the world, is, the more you're just going to see dysfunction and acceleration of these ideas of who deserves, who gets. It just gets higher and higher stakes. Um, and the thing that I wanted to tell you about, about movies, the, the, the crazy thing about uh, this. Yeah, so um, this is this is my turn to riff. I'm, I'm not a riffer like you, Ben, but I'm going to try. Uh, I read this great article and I was trying to Google it before because I really want to give credit to the person who who wrote this, but I could not find it. So the 1970s, we talked about the explosion of civil rights and all kinds of different groups coming out and trying to demand rights on paper and rights in practice and going to the courts and going to the streets based on gender, sexuality, race, ethnic identity, um, all kinds of things. In 1977, again, like Alan Backey sues the University of California and it goes to the Supreme Court um, in the 77, 78 term to strike down the quota system. The idea of like, can't a white guy get a shake around here? <laughs> yeah. 1976, or I guess 1977, whatever, yeah. I'm, I'm wrong on this. The movie Rocky comes out. Yeah. About this white guy really deserves it. This good-hearted guy coming up from Philadelphia, going against wealthy, showboating Apollo Creed. This guy who has it all, and America roots for Rocky. And then in 1979, right, right after the quota system is struck down, we get Rocky too. We get the rematch between Apollo and Rocky, and Apollo does every sort of dirty trick of playing his advantage to try to, uh, you know, do whatever. And I was thinking about this before before we signed on, and you know, I, I always say to you, like, I know you do cannabis ads. I'm not a cannabis person, but I do always bring my adult beverage on your show. Um, that to some degree, there's some group of people, and I will specifically say some group of white people, maybe even some group of bros, pumping their out there today, looking at this decision and saying like, yo, Adrian, we did it. And that really freaks me out. Right, that idea. And that's the moment where the explosion and the expansion of civil rights, of identity, of pushing for justice and equality starts to narrow and we get the backlash. Yeah. And it doesn't always happen at once. And there are many turning points and it takes a long time and a lot of like creepy right wing money infiltrating school board races or people funding these cases to go all the way up to the Supreme Court. But you have a day like today and you think like, man, this is a win for somebody. That's really, really hard to think about what do you wake up tomorrow and do when you know that today was a win for somebody? I don't know anybody who's treating it like a win, but I know they're out there. Oh, my goodness. Mag is treating it as a win. Uh, the the gentleman whose name I think is Bloom and uh, who financed the camp, the lawsuit is treating it as a win. Uh, we are even talking about uh Asian American I have a uh, family story for you. who are treating it like a win. So there are a lot of people uh, in America right now treating it like a win, but go ahead with your story. So the great MAGA story is that a couple blocks from me, someone raised a giant Trump 2024 Make America Great Again flag. 
And then a couple of days later, across the street, someone raised a Taylor Swift 2024 flag. Um, and the Trump flag came down first. And, you know, generationally, I am out of the space where Taylor Swift is comprehensible to me. But for a while, I was coming and going from the park. And I just thought that this was great. Like, I mean, Every time I come on your show, I want to do a call to action to people to say, like, we need to talk about these things. And God help us. We need to have fun with them. Right. Like, let's not make politics terrible. Let's not let the terrible people dominate these conversations. Let's make it fun. Let's have a good time. Even as the world may be on fire around yeah. us. Uh, and good, good for you, uh, Taylor Swift. Uh, <laughs> Taylor Swift. <laughs> Trump fan blinked. Uh, that would be uh, he, he got intimidated by a Taylor Swift sign. I mean, um, again, flocks of young people, terrifying people. Yes. Uh, all right. Uh, the notion of bros celebrating uh, outside of Wrigley Field, this affirmative action ruling is uh, is has got me smiling. I have by chance. Those, those are your words, sir. Not mine. Yes. Uh, <laughs> but just seriously, like tonight as you go to bed, I hope the last thing you think before you fall asleep is, yo, Adrian, I did it. Yeah, no. And that's, uh, I mean, okay, I could go on a huge riff here and I'm going to restrain myself because there's other topics I want to go on to. <laughs> but the underlying theme of Rocky, and I've seen like, Oh, I had this confession. I've seen most of the Rocky movies. Uh, and now I've seen the Creed movies. I'm really into boxing. But the underlying theme is that white people have a disadvantage to black people uh, when it comes to sports. And what makes Rocky so appealing to white people is that the white guy won. And I hear this Rocky so had heart. Yeah. Right. He had heart. The other guy had the skills. Rocky had heart. You're right. Feet, but this person has leadership abilities. This person has intangibles. And we talked about this with the Vallis race, right? Like the last time we were talking about all these people in attributing these intangibles to this guy. He's some kind of budget wizard. He understands the government. He's going to do whatever. Um, we know that that was not the case. But still, I, I think there is the idea of a great white hope. I think I had mentioned that someone who was uh, on my campaign knocked on a door and somebody said, you know, I'm not a racist, but I think white people just need to get behind our candidate because everyone else is getting behind their candidate. We should do the same. Wow. <laughs> oh, my Lord. I, just, I don't even want to go there. The Vallis. Every time I think about the fact uh, the city almost elected Paul Vallis as its mayor, I just want to cry. But. We Demographics didn't. are trending in a way that I do not see something like that happening again, right? And you and I will someday talk about that as again as another generational inflection point, right? Uh, as yeah. the spasm of dailyism and between diversity and aging, and hopefully with this progressive movement, more folks coming out and voting or getting engaged and involved in politics. Hopefully, you know. Yeah. You know uh, I'm not running for anything running my mouth, but I hope we continue to expand the electorate and we're not going to see that happen again. Yeah. All right. And that's a good way of thinking about it. Uh, and one last spasm of dailyism, uh, particularly prevalent among some of the same Lakeview residents who are very concerned about the teenagers who destroyed their neighborhood. Uh, all right. Um, let us close with uh, uh, something that uh, you wanted to talk about. Uh, and uh, I'm not even prepared uh, to talk about this, but I'll be listening very carefully to what you have to say, and then I will respond, uh, ladies and gentlemen. So you want to talk about census count. The floor is yours. I want to say two things that are public service announcements, one of which is that tomorrow is the last day for states and localities to challenge the 2020 census count. And for 2020, Illinois was about 2% undercounted. We know Chicago has not challenged. Tomorrow is the last day. Chicago needs a demographer. I hope we challenge. It brings a lot of federal money in. And the other thing that I want to talk about is that the 4th of July weekend is coming up and we are in close proximity to Indiana. I would like you all to be really safe with fireworks. Um, however bad the Chicago Bears might be, I am a New York Giants fan. And very famously, Jason Pierre-Paul from the New York Giants blew off part of his hand yes. with fireworks. Mm -hmm. So um, just be safe safe with them but ben you know i'm with you on the fireworks i'm so scared of fireworks i never let them off and uh also public service announcement this weekend i will bring nascar to the city of chicago i'm uh, having much delight in watching the city's response uh to nascar it's a very interesting chicago mix uh on one hand there's the complaining of chicagoans uh because it's upsetting our life which is uh i can understand 
uh, I mean, nobody has Channel Nine News has not said uh, it's the <laughs> end of civilization. Uh, no one's but working is, on a race car yet. No, yeah, no way <laughs> yet. But Channel Nine is watching to see if that happens. Uh, teenager takeover NASCAR. Uh, and uh, so on one hand, they're complaining because it's inconvenience or closing down streets. I understand that uh, it's going to be noisy and it's affecting the, uh, the museums, et cetera, and so forth. It's a pain in the neck. Uh, but on the other hand, it's like bringing attention to Chicago. We are such a second city. We have such a second city complex. We're so insecure that any kind of national attention gets Chicago and feeling good about themselves. So the newspapers are filled with stories like NASCAR is coming to town. Oh my God. <laughs> and he got all these sports writers guys i know you know nothing about nascar writing these columns and articles about nascar like they know something about nascar and i'm like wow man dude you just like spent about two hours on the internet learned a bare minimum to do oh, it's like the world cup where all of a sudden yeah. people think they know about soccer but i'll say like i know this is Lori's deal right but i will say every time you go i'm going to keep pushing for the idea that oh making revolution and doing all of these things and it's very funny to me because i feel like you know with the election of brandon johnson with all these things that we're hoping will happen expanded public sector a compassionate city a lot of us rode in on this wave of like you know under the pavement the beach and like today or this weekend it's like over the park the nascar track it doesn't (laughs) feel the best right now but I still think that, you know, we got to keep having these conversations. We got to keep pushing. We got to keep telling people that, you know, there is a promise of a compassionate public sector. There is a promise of a city that works. There is the promise of, you know, a who gets what and why that is based in justice and fairness and a little bit of relief from anxiety. And so, you know, I, I, I don't hope people get what they deserve. Wow. Uh that caught me off guard that last sentence but i understand what you're saying all right we're going to close down this conversation uh denali thank you very much and ladies and gentlemen there is apps you can't see it but i see it uh there is some kind of mathematical formula on a chalkboard <laughs> behind her uh i don't know what she was doing but it, it had to do with complex mathematics uh so uh i appreciate that immensely the great uh denali that Gupta, I blew that one. And uh, Adele Dazim. It's a very easy name. Yes. And I uh, also want to thank producer Chris Mann. He he is going to stitch together this, ladies and gentlemen. You won't even know the issues <laughs> that we had because he does a great job. Uh, so, producer Chris, give yourself a raise. Take it out of petty cash. Peace and love, everybody. And remember, you can always download previous Ben Jarofsky shows, get Benny J bonus interviews, and so much more at chicagoreader.com. Find the Ben Jarofsky Show on Instagram at Benny J Show and like and subscribe to the Ben Jarofsky Show on your favorite streaming and podcasting platforms.